Hello, I'm Brian Johnston, Head of Property Litigation at Denton's, and welcome to the Denton's Property Litigation Podcast. The topic of today's discussion is restrictive covenants. I have the pleasure of being joined by Toby Walking QC and our very own Leanne Norton. Toby is a barrister at Landmark Chambers, specialising in property law, particularly in the field of development. He only became silk very recently, but has operated at the highest levels of property litigation for many years, appearing in many cases from tribunal all the way up to Supreme Court level. He has an intense grasp of detail and has a chess grand master's ability to work out every piece in the board's potential moves and how to get to a decisive checkmate quickly and effectively. Toby gives no-nonsense advice and speaks in plain English. He gets commercial reality approaches problems from the end client's perspective. He has no problem getting his hands in the blood and is a team player and reassuring presence in the cut and thrust of litigation combat. Leanne is one of Denton's experts on restrictive covenants and development matters in general. She regularly acts on and advises on covenant issues and other matters. Restrictive covenants are a very technical area which often come up during land assembly and if they're not thought about carefully and early they can cause really expensive headaches. Leanne's experience and expertise puts her in an excellent position to put the most pertinent questions concerning restrictive covenants to Toby. Leanne, over to you. Hello, Toby. Morning. As Brian mentioned, restrictive covenants are very common and it is very likely that developers who are assembling a development site will come across them. What are the key things that a developer should look out for when they are considering a development on land which is subject to one. Well, I know that you're aware, Leanne, of the great technicalities involved in this area uh, through your work and your work with me. However, for non-lawyers, I think I would say there are three key things to keep in the forefront of your mind if you come across a restrictive covenant. The first one is to be very careful that you are sure about exactly what the covenant is seeking to prohibit which sounds obvious, but I'll come back to that later on, perhaps. Secondly, you should bear in mind that covenants aren't always as enforceable as they look. So they hang around on titles for a long time, but it may turn out that they are not as effective as people think that they are. Uh, And the third one is that many people know that the upper tribunal has the power to modify restrictive covenants, unlike some other problems with development. However, it's very important to bear in mind how constrained that power is, and not to see it as a magic wand. So those are the three things which I would say, if you keep those three things at the forefront of your mind, uh, you'll have a good head start on understanding the problems that are ahead or not. Okay, so taking those points in turn then, what should people be thinking about when they read the terms of restrictive covenant? Well, as I said, the key point is to understand and think about exactly what the covenant does and doesn't prohibit. And that may be much less obvious than it seems because covenants are always written in plain English or very largely in plain English. And they use lots of terms which we use in everyday life, like a private dwelling or a building. And people tend to assume that they know what those mean. However, as you know, there's a lot of case law out there about these things and it can be quite technical. So, for example, if you're not allowed to erect a building, does that include the building of an underground car park? An issue that I've come across before. If you can use it as a private dwelling, as you know, there's been a lot of litigation about Airbnb use and whether that counts as private dwelling or one of the other combinations of those sort of terms that you see. 
One thing which I would point out and often do point out is that there are some covenants which are more restrictive than they seem. And a very good example of that is covenants not to cause someone a nuisance or annoyance through the use of property. Because nuisance is a word that we all understand and we see that it's separately actionable as a tort. People seem to assume that nuisance or annoyance covenants don't really add anything, but that's not true. And a very good example of that is a case called Denison Davis. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast will know that there's no automatic right to preserve a view. And so when developers are assembling sites, they tend to assume they think about rights of life and things like that, but they never think about the view. But in Denison Davis, a covenant not to cause nuisance or annoyance was breached by the erection of new buildings between somebody and the River Thames that they had a view over. Uh, and that was found to be a breach of the covenant. And that's a very good example of a covenant which everybody assumed meant you know, not playing music after dark or something like that, but actually was a real problem for the developer in that case. So it's well worth having a very close look at the terms. It sounds obvious, but it's not always as obvious as it first appears. I will ask you about uh, modification of covenants by the Upper Tribunal in a moment, but subject to that possibility, if a restrictive covenant seems to prohibit what a developer wants to do, is that fatal? Well, the short answer is not necessarily. Without getting too technical, it's important to understand that covenants are enforceable for two different reasons. So covenant begins life as a promise between one landowner and another, and like all other contractual promises, it's enforceable directly between them. But covenants are unusual in that they're also enforceable about against subsequent owners who never made that promise. And that arises because equity treats the later owners as having bought the property subject to a restriction on its use, which the subsequent owner, if they know about it, which is now dealt with by registration, but if they know about that restriction, their conscience is bound by it. So they're obliged to comply with the covenant, even if they didn't make the promise. Effectively, they bought the property with the promise attached to it. Because of that, uh, there are some particular reasons why covenants might not be enforceable, because that rule is only in existence to effectively continue the protection that was originally agreed. And that means that if the purpose of the covenant was to achieve, for example, a residential nature of the area, so a covenant not to build very dense housing or not to use properties other than for residential purposes, may, the purpose of that covenant may have been to preserve the residential nature. And we've all seen covenants on land, which has turned into an industrial estate since then. And in that situation, the law, or more accurately, equity, concludes that the purpose is no longer achievable. And if it's no longer achievable, the covenant ceases to be effective. So that's one way in which a covenant which will still be on the title can cease to have been of any effect. The other thing is that the registry tends to put covenants on the title without really thinking about whether they bind subsequent owners. And there are some very technical reasons why uh, covenants may not continue to be effective, because they weren't properly taken for the benefit of any identifiable land. So in order to create an effective restrictive covenant which binds forever, the land which is benefiting from it has to be properly identified. And a recent example of that being a problem is the Bath Rugby Cup case, where a covenant which was imposed in 1922 on the sale of part of a what was then an estate, I think it was called the Bathwick Estate, failed because the covenant was not to do something which would cause a nuisance or annoyance in the neighbourhood. And the Court of Appeal decided that that was not a sufficient identification of the property which had the benefit of it. 
So there are lots of quite technical points about that case, but it's a good example of a covenant which everybody had assumed for a long time and almost up to the Court of Appeal, it was held to be effective below that level, had been an effective covenant since 1922, but in fact it probably failed the moment that land was sold for the first time after that. So it, it is well worth going, before you go to the question of whether or not you can modify a covenant, to look very carefully and get some advice on whether or not these covenants are actually going to be effective. In my experience, I would say in half of the cases where I'm asked about modification, there is some angle which suggests that the covenant actually can be got around in some other way. So can I just ask there, if you were to turn that around on its head, mm-hmm. i.e. you're at the point where you're looking to perhaps impose restrictive covenants yeah. on adjoining land, what practical advice would you give, say, somebody in that position to ensure that the covenant becomes effective? Well, there are various things which you now, it's clear you have to do. Modern comfort covenants are drafted by conveyances who understand these rules. I'm sure your teams do this all the time. But you have to be very clear that you're identifying the land which is burdened and the land which is benefited. Although this is less important since 1925, for reasons I won't bore you with, it's very important to make it clear in the terms of the conveyance that the protections and benefits are intended to continue after the current owners have changed as well. And that's done in the language of the covenant. But equally, it's important to think very carefully about precisely what you're trying to limit and how carefully uh, you word it to make sure it is. The reason why there are lots and lots of cases about what private dwelling house means or residential dwellings are, because you get into debates about whether or not, for example, if a covenant says you can only use it uh, as a residential dwelling, that actually means a single dwelling, or it means any number of residential dwellings, because often the singular includes the plural. And so it's very important to think very carefully about what you're trying to stop. Start the drafting from the point of view of, right, let's identify exactly what I don't want to happen and start with that because and be as clear as you can, as precise and as comprehensive as you can to do that. But, of course, imposing restrictive covenants comes at a cost because, of course, you devalue the property by doing that. One other thing I would point out which causes endless problems is that covenants are often imposed with a proviso that you can't do something except with the consent of somebody else. And they cause no end of trouble because the covenant lasts a long time, but the person doesn't last. So if it was the, you know, the vendor, not without the consent of the vendor's surveyor, for example, what does that mean the surveyor of only that vendor? Does it mean the surveyor at the time? Does it mean that any subsequent owner of benefiting land, so someone who buys from the vendor's surveyor, and what happens is that there are now 10 owners of that land because it's been divided up into plots and sold. And there are loads and loads of cases which have turned on issues about that, uh, because it appears obvious in the first place when you put that on what vendor surveyor is. So the lesson from that is, think about the future. What happens, not when I'm owning it, but when somebody else will own it, or when I've sold a bit of it later on. Yeah, so the key is surrounding enforceability, really, and how you come to enforce it. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so that takes us neatly on to modification of covenants. Many people listening to this will know that the Upper Tribunal has a statutory power to discharge or modify covenants pursuant to Section 84 of the Law of Property Act. In practice, how easy is it to obtain a discharge or modification? Well, we're in an area of technicality in restrictive covenants, and the rules about modification are just as technical as all the other aspects in that sense. There are specific grounds upon which discharge can be obtained. Um, we probably don't have time to go into all of them or in any of them in any detail. But as a starting point, 
it's worth noting that almost all applications for modification which are successful are obtained under what is now called ground AA. And to satisfy that ground, the applicant has to show that the covenant is impeding some reasonable use of the land, first of all. And that's usually demonstrated by showing that you've got planning permission for it, because if you've got planning permission for what you want to do, it's assumed, generally speaking, to be a reasonable thing to do on that land, because somebody has looked at it in the public interest. Uh, then you have to show that the ability of the person who holds the benefit of the covenant to stop that use by enforcing the covenant doesn't accord to that person a, quote, practical benefit of substantial value or advantage. So turning that around and putting it in a different way, you have to establish that going ahead despite the covenant won't cause that person a substantial injury in terms of value and practicality. If you can establish that ground, the tribunal then has a discretion to modify, which it usually exercises in favour of modification, and to award compensation for the loss of the benefit, which isn't a ransom loss, so they can't get a share of your profits, they can only get the value of the injury to their land. But because of the power to modify in those situations, I would say that the most common error which is made by people when considering the tribunal is to assume that because the tribunal has a compensation power, and it has these detailed grounds for modification, that really the purpose of the tribunal is simply to fix the price for getting out of a covenant. So effectively, it's a get out of covenant, not free card, but a get out of covenant service for which they're just pricing the amount that you have to buy out. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. It's not like a compulsory purchase power of a local authority where they can just purchase it and then you can argue about the price. You do actually have to establish that price. Not only that, because you can't establish that ground if the impact of your development is substantial, that it is, it will uh, remove from the owner of the benefit of the covenant a practical benefit of substantial value or advantage, there is a point at which the amount of compensation gets large enough to show that it is substantial. So effectively, if you want to modify a covenant and it's going to cause a lot of injury, you don't just end up writing a larger check. Your application to modify fails. So people can assume that the tribunal has a power to modify in all cases. In fact, it has a reasonably narrow power to modify in situations where it's not going to do anybody much harm. And how serious can a miscalculation by a developer be in relation to restrictive covenants? I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of the Alexandra Devine Children's Cancer Trust case. Well, the answer is it can be very serious, as that case shows. For those who haven't come across that case, it was in 2018 that it reached the Court of Appeal, I think. What happened was that the developer proceeded with a housing scheme on land which it knew was subject to a restrictive covenant, although it thought it might have some arguments around the restrictive covenant. The developer seems to have taken the chance that if the beneficiary of the covenant tried to enforce it, the developer could go off to the upper tribunal and get it modified. And indeed, it did manage to get it modified at first instance level by the upper tribunal. And it maybe, maybe it assumed that the upper tribunal would take the view that once the houses are up and built, it would be a terrible waste not to allow them to be used, which was indeed what the upper tribunal found. And they've been built with planning permission as well. So there were lots of reasons to think you would be optimistic about it. Uh, however, the Court of Appeal took a very dim view about that as a, as a course of action, effectively presenting as a fait accompli the building of this stuff. There is a separate ground for modification connected to ground AA, which is where 
uh, even though it does cause a substantial impact, nevertheless, the modification is in the public interest, or rather the uh, restriction is contrary to the public interest is the way in which it's framed. However, that has always been treated as very narrowly defined. The upper tribunal in that case decided it would be contrary to the public interest to stop these new houses being used, having been built. And the Court of Appeal said, absolutely, that is not what it means. Contrary to the public interest means you need a new hospital and it has to be there. It doesn't mean uh, it's terribly wasteful because you can't use these houses, which this developer has just built. So the Court of Appeal took a very dim view of that and was extremely critical of the decision of the developer to proceed with what appeared to be an obvious breach of covenant, assuming that a modification would go ahead rather than getting a modification in advance or getting a declaration that the covenant was no longer enforceable. And so the effect of that case also shows what can happen because the position ends up that you have a covenant which remains enforceable and you have all these houses which you can't actually use. So I don't know what the practical solution to that was, but often the practical solution is that uh, if a modification application fails and you've left it too late to stop your development going ahead, you've handed the other side a ransom at the very least, even if they're prepared to make a deal. So that's a good example of the importance of getting early advice and then following it and perhaps ensuring against title defects like that if you think that there's doubt about it. Um, but if you just proceed on the assumption that the upper tribunal will bail you out with the modification application, you can come very badly unstuck. So given the upper tribunal's powers focus on the impact of modification on people with the benefit, would it be wise to focus on what practical impact the developer's scheme will have on the land benefited by the covenant? Absolutely. The, you have to be extremely focused on what the impact of what you're going to do is going to be on the person with the benefit of the covenant. The most frequent misapprehension about process which I see in practice, obviously acting for Dentons because you would already have told your clients this, Quite often I get instructions which say, my developer client has bought these plots, they've got these covenants on, can we make an application to get them modified? And the immediate answer is, well, that depends on what you're going to do with the land and what effect that will have on the person with the benefit of the covenants, assuming they're enforceable. And quite often I then say to them, perhaps let's look at whether they're enforceable first before we get into that. But because the tribunal will look at the impact of what you're going to do, you effectively can't judge whether or not your application is going to be successful until you've decided what you're going to do. So you have to have a scheme. And you can't make an application to discharge a covenant unless it's obsolete, unless its function has gone. You can't make an application to discharge a covenant in practical terms until you've got planning permission for an actual scheme. So there's a sort of iterative process here. You think about your scheme, then you think about your covenant, then you modify your scheme to reduce the impact on the covenant to the point where somebody like you or me is saying, we think you've got a very good chance of getting that through the process. And then you start the process in the upper tribunal and they modify it. So first of all, think about whether the covenant has failed and can be ignored. And if that's a viable position, you may never have to go to the tribunal. You can get that determined by the High Court. Then you think about your schemes. And in the majority of advice of situations that I've come across, particularly with older covenants, there is a way of creating a scheme which works or which can get you a modification. The purpose of the upper tribunal's power is to ensure that covenants don't unnecessarily stop development. And so as long as you're sympathetic in the way in which you develop stuff, there is a good chance that you can find a way through. That's what I would say. Okay, well, that just about brings us to the end of our time today. Uh, Toby, I'd like to thank you for joining us and for your insight on key issues concerning restrictive covenants 
and the practical advice given for those faced with them, or indeed those with the benefit of them. Restrictive covenants have proven to be a really rich source of litigation, so hopefully we'll see you in action on a covenant case in court soon that will help developers and adjoining owners alike better understand the law. Thank you for listening. My guests have been Leanne Norton and Toby Watkin QC, and I hope you have enjoyed today's Denton's Property Litigation Podcast. Mm-hmm.